as we consider the everlasting love of God, turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 21. You can use your Blue Pew Bible. Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 21, and I'll be reading through verse 34. Just think of the everlasting love of God that He would give us His own word that we can read even in our own language. This is the very word of God. Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 21. And He said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone hears, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear, for with the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word, would you Pray with me now. Holy Father, we thank you for your everlasting love, even in Jesus Christ the Son, and by the gift of your Holy Spirit who has inspired even your very word. We thank you that we can read the Bible in our own language, that we can know your word, that we can know your mind. We thank you for this great privilege that your word is what produces in us true and living faith by your spirit so that we can know who Christ is, know what he has accomplished, know what he calls us to do. Thank you, Father, for this gift of your word. We pray that today, that as we sing your praises, as we hear the word preached, that you would create in us new life, that you would cause even the rule and reign of the messianic kingdom of Jesus Christ to spread in our hearts. We pray that you would 
tear down all of our idols and all of our walls and all of our resistance to your own sovereign hand. We pray that you would do a deep work in each heart today. We thank you that this ministry, the ministry of this church, does not end with these four walls. We thank you that there are people from this church going out and heralding the gospel in other churches. We thank you for Pastor Josh Carey, for raising him up and calling him even to pastoral ministry. We ask, as he announces in Cochrane his candidacy to be their senior pastor, we ask that you would give him great wisdom and stamina and great faith, that you would protect him from the schemes of the enemy. We pray for that congregation in Cochrane. We ask, Lord, that you would watch over them. We see your hand of love toward them, that you brought them a, a shepherd in Jeff Jones to care for them in those early days. And now, as you have moved Jeff on to do further ministry in New Brunswick, we see that you have not left that church without hope, that you have provided the possibility of them having then another shepherd. We pray that you would guide and bless this process. Help us as a local church. Help us in the ways that we need as we need help to serve and even meet the needs of this congregation. We trust you'll raise up those workers that are required for the harvest that is here. We pray that you would help us all to be gospel workers. That even without a title, we would all be those who herald your gospel, share your gospel, speak the gospel, hold forth Jesus Christ in all of his rule and reign, and to do that in all aspects of our lives. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would do a deep work in us so that this church would represent the interests of her King. We pray that you would help us to be salt and light in this generation, that you would help us to be bold, you would help us to be confident, not in ourselves, but in Jesus Christ, our King. Father, we ask that you would help us to be loyal subjects of the King. You would fill us even with the Spirit of the King, even now, that we would glorify Him, for in doing so, Father, we glorify You. So do this work amongst us powerfully, and in each heart, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The Christian experience is the experience of communing with God. And when we do this, when we commune with God, even as we've been hearing the word read and praying to God as we've been singing, singing praises to the triune God. When this happens, we're, we're looking, as it were, past the seen world and we're looking to, as it were, this unseen world. Even as we sang, when darkness hides his face, man cannot look upon God. And so there's this sense of God being unseen to us. But as Robert Murray McShane, one of my 
spiritual heroes said, there is nothing like a calm look into the eternal world to teach us the emptiness of human praise, the sinfulness of self-seeking and vainglory, and then to teach us the preciousness of Christ. That's what happens when you look into that eternal, unseen world. By faith, when we commune with God, we're communing with Him, in this sense, from the seen world to the unseen world. And when that happens, when you're communing with God, there's this power that animates you, that comes within you. It changes you, and it expands your capacities in ways that you never dreamed of. In this communion with God, when this happens, we experience an awakening, an awareness then of the kingdom of God, that He is our King. We're aware of that. Specifically, we're then alert to the presence of Christ, even to His future rule and reign, and it is then brought into the present, breaking into time, our time right now, breaking into our present, and literally we experience what one theologian called the presence of the future. That is what happens when we commune with God. We are experiencing the presence of the future. We experience the presence of the dawning of the final eschatological age breaking in upon us. That final age where Christ's full dominion is felt and known. And we get to experience that. We get to experience that, that end day when every knee will bow, when every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that is in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Philippians 2.11 The final knee-bowing ceremony, if you will, that has broken into the present and we are experiencing even all of this as we walk by faith rather than by sight. We, we are literally bowing, aren't we? We're bowing our hearts. We're bowing our minds this morning. We're bowing our will even to this unseen king. And when that happens, when that happens personally, individually, we've got that kind of communion with God, when that is sensed and known and grown, then you realize that God is doing the same thing in the person in the pew beside you. Hopefully. That's what's happening. You, they're having the same growth. God is growing them in the church. And then collectively, pew upon pew upon pew, all of you together. I think I heard one of the kids say, pew. <laughs> There's too many pews there. Pew, pew. Anyway, that's for the boys. That's None of that's in here. Um. <laughs> but it is what's happening, isn't it? Like, we're all growing together, collectively. So as individual, our individual communion with God, but collectively, we're all growing together. We're all expanding. We're flourishing. Your life is changing 
Your capacities to love God are changing. They're growing. Your capacities to love difficult people are growing and changing. And you flourish. As I was singing, we were sit, standing here singing, and I, you know, one, of the, one of the marvels of, of the Gothic architecture that's left over here in the Lutheran church, you wonder what are all those little things on those little spires? Well, they're buds. And the idea is as you look to Christ in the cross, your devotion goes upward and it buds. It grows and expands. And that's the symbolism of it. But that's what's happening. We're Collectively, we're growing and expanding and flourishing. And this is the, this is the kind of growth which God then manifests in the world. This is the expansion of of the kingdom. We don't create the kingdom. We don't build the kingdom. But we receive this powerfully internal force of the kingdom that pushes itself out, goes in and pushes itself out into every part of our lives and into the whole world. That is what's going on. We don't belong to a static kingdom but a dynamic one god is sovereign all over all that is undisputed but the kingdom refers specifically to this dynamic movement that all of us need to recognize and that is why jesus taught the parables that's why these parables are here and these are a series of kingdom parables. And I think right now in our, our age, in this environment where everybody's thinking about church and state and all of these different things, and things can seem very gloomy and hopeless, it is very important to get back to Jesus' own teaching on the kingdom. What did Jesus say? And he taught these parables that we need to appropriate and understand so that we know what is the kingdom that Jesus has brought as opposed to kingdoms that other people would like to see come to pass. So we have then this first parable, the lamp under the basket. You may be familiar with it. Jesus' parables always get to the purpose of things. And in this case, in verses 21 to 25, he speaks of the analogy of, of a lamp. Now, what's the purpose? It's very simple. Like kids can get this. What's the purpose of a lamp? Like, what's a lamp for? Well, its purpose is to be openly revealed so that its light can expand and it penetrates everywhere. And this is the case. Then, this lamp is not to be put under a basket or under a bed. It's to be put on a stand. That's what it's for. So the connection, of course, then is Christ's own kingdom, his own rule and reign. It is not a static thing. See, some of you have kind of fallen into the trap. You come to this church, say, oh yeah, these guys talk about the sovereignty of God here. I like this. You kind of get this static view of God's sovereignty and then, oh yeah, well, God's in the heavens, he's, you know, it's stag, he's over all, it's, you know, you know, God wills it, you just kind of throw up your hands. And you kind of forget 
the dynamism of the kingdom. This, this kingdom is not immobile. It's not closed in. It's not limited. It's not hoarded or hidden so that only maybe then some Gnostic elite can partic- par- participate in it. No, Christ's kingdom will not be restricted. It is dynamic. John 1.5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. It hasn't overcome it. By contrast, Proverbs 4.19, the way of the wicked is like the darkest gloom. They do not know what makes them stumble. They don't even know. They're tripping over stuff they don't even know. Of course, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men did what? They loved the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. John 3.19 Jesus said, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. John 12.46 If you've come here this morning in darkness... You don't have to stay there. You don't have to stay there. The world tells you, if you're in darkness, you have to stay there. That's your identity. That's where you stay. That's, you're, you're a darkness person. You do not have to stay there. Christ came to bring you out. And that's the hope that we believe in. And that's the powerful purpose of Jesus' kingdom. He brings light to the darkened, and they cannot remain in the darkness. It's not that, oh, they, they can pick it or not. They, they, they can't remain that way. See, it's, this darkness thing, light in the darkness, it's hard for people to accept. Because the person who has only known darkness in their life is skeptical about a world of light. They can't believe it. Plato, the philosopher, spoke of the men in caves who saw shadows on a wall but could not imagine the actual living figures who cast the shadows. So it doesn't matter what measurement you may use. The invincibility of this light expansion will continue. It must continue. The mercies of the kingdom must expand. It must happen. There's a poem based on Samuel Rutherford's writing, and it's even in a song you may know. And it goes like this, O Christ, He is the fountain, the deep, deep well of love. The streams on earth I've tasted, more deep I'll drink above. There, to an ocean fullness, His mercy doth expand. And glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. Is that, what, is that how you see the kingdom? Is this expansiveness, this filling of an ocean of mercy towards you? Or is it that all you see is the darkness that's out there? And there's a lot of it. You have to see the expansiveness of His mercy, the expansiveness of what the kingdom is and how it, it is pushing out as light pushes into the, into the darkness. So it doesn't really matter the measurement 
of the kingdom's expansion, it will be added beyond your calculation. So however you're measuring it, it's going to be more. It's going to be spectacularly more. See, the thing is, we all, you and me, we have too small of thoughts about the invincible expansion of the kingdom of Christ. I don't know, did you think this when I made the announcement about Josh candidate and out, out in Cochrane? You may, you may have thought this because I did. Oh, we can't lose him. <laughs> what, what, what if he goes, there's a big hole to fill? Well, that's what I thought. Maybe you didn't, but that's what I thought. But then you've got to remember, oh, hold on here. There was a time when Pastor Josh wasn't here. And Jeff Jones went out. And we thought, oh, what am I going to do if Jeff isn't here? How's, how's the church going to run? And then all of a sudden, God raised up someone else. But we can have small thoughts of God. And small thoughts of the expansiveness of his kingdom. This invincible, and I'm calling it invincible, it can't be stopped. This invincible expansion, it doesn't require postmillennialism. This invincible expansion does not require Christian nationalism. This invincible expansion does not require man made revivalism. It doesn't need all of those things regardless of their merits in and of themselves. Rather, that invincible expansion will be as light in darkness, piercing it and chasing it away. In Geneva, I'm told, I haven't been there, there is this wall monument to the Reformation. And all of these reformers are sculpted there in relief. And on the Reformation wall, as it's called, is inscribed the Latin slogan of the Reformation. The Latin slogan is post tenebras lux. After darkness, light. After darkness, light. See, that, that's what happened at the Protestant Reformation. We don't we don't glamorize it for its own sake. We recognize it as an occasion where there was such darkness and God broke in with the kingdom and brought more light and it pierced the darkness, the darkness of medieval Europe. Canada's pretty dark right now, right? Do I need to convince you of that? No, I don't think so. If you need convincing, I'll see you at the door. I've got a list of reasons why our pleasant, nice society is extremely dark. But should that discourage us? Well, that in itself is discouraging, but not the possibility of after darkness, light. The lamp of Christ's kingdom will be immeasurably more powerful and more expansive than anything we can imagine because everything that precedes it is like darkness by comparison. You think this is, you think this, I mean, Paul and I are commenting, is it nice to be in a full church? 
You think this is encouraging? Wait till you see the encouragement to come. All that Christ will do and the possibilities of what He could do. And then you've got to ask yourself, you, yourself, individually, do you, you yourself, do you believe that Christ's kingdom to you personally in your life can invincibly change your world? Do you believe that? Do you believe that He can do it? Like, think about our world. Can you imagine communist China becoming godly China? Can you believe it? You know, godly China sending missionaries to the ends of the earth. Can you imagine the sexual revolution in the West passes like the darkness at dawn in favor of a holiness revolution. Can you believe that? Can you believe that the Muslim world lays down its resistance to the invincible Christ who is truly God, God the Son incarnate? They lay down their resistance. And there is a mass coming to the true Christ. Such a lamp is not meant to be put under a basket, but on a stand. And so do you see then this church and your witness in it and through it is to be on those stands. This church is to be a lampstand. The book of Revelation says as much. The book of Revelation speaks of Christ among the golden lampstands. And the threat, then, is of a removal of a lampstand for those that are unfaithful. And it's widely understood that Jesus is speaking about churches as lampstands. That's what we're here to do, is to put the lamp on the stand. We're we're just holding up Christ. Here's Christ for Calgary. Here's Christ's kingdom with all of its light penetrating the darkness. We just want to hold that up. We're just here. Support. Put that forward. That's all we are. Let's be faithful in holding forth Christ. Because if we're not, He will find other lampstands and He will take this one away. It's as simple as that. So then, just to be very practical, do you have confidence? Confidence that God can use this church, these people, this this church, Not some other church. Do you believe God can use this church, this lampstand, to to a faithful, faithful purpose in presenting the light of Christ's kingdom to this city? Or are we just hiding away here? Are we just hiding behind the four walls here? Or are we to be used to present Christ into this darkness? with confidence. That's that's what Jesus is getting at. I think Jesus, by giving these parables, is in part trying to build up the confidence of the disciples. And to have such confidence, we need to first believe in the invincibility of the lamp's purpose. Or, if we won't believe that, then the little that we have will be taken away. And that's his point. 
The kingdom of Christ's rule, his lordship, his sovereignty is pushing and permeating everywhere in this dark world. So we ought to have confidence in the revealing of this kingdom. Kenneth Clark, he's an art historian. Uh, I mean, I was surprised how much I liked this program. But in the 60s, there was this BBC miniseries called Civilization. Maybe you've seen it. And so you got this quirky Englishman, and he's talking about all this art history and various things. I, I mean, it's just fascinating, though. I was surprised how much I liked it. But he said, his conclusion was, as he studied all these different civilizations, he said the key feature of, of a civilization is that it has confidence. It has confidence. Confidence in, in its purpose for being. And when it has that confidence, then it creates art and architecture and structures and society that fits that. That's, that's the nature of it. Well, if we were to apply this, then the invincible growth of Christ, Christ's light, even the kingdom of light, it should fill us with confidence. Like, we should be bolstered by that. It's not self-confidence. We're not trusting ourselves. It's not confidence in our surroundings. Oh, that looks pretty bleak. But confidence in the invincible expansion of the kingdom of light. In other words, don't let the darkness get you down. And I think you have been, have you not? I, it's been getting me down. And I have to fight and resist being depressed about what's going on in the world. And instead, have confidence in the kingdom of Christ. That's kind of the main driver in this first parable. Now, in the second parable, Jesus switches his metaphors, but he's still saying the same stuff. If the first one emphasized this invincible growth, this second parable emphasizes a more mysterious aspect of growth. So we move from the invincible growth to a mysterious growth. And so Jesus goes back to the farming metaphors in verses 26 through 34. The second parable of the three is the picture of a sower again. But it's different than the other parable of the sower. This time, it's not the sower and then the heart soils that the seed lands on. Instead, he talks about what happens when the planting is done. What does the farmer do at the end of a long day of seeding? Well, he goes to bed. He goes to sleep. We read verse 26. You see it there. The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day. The seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. Jesus is pointing out the mystery of the kingdom's growth. It is a mystery. It's mysterious because it's not a formula. It's not an equation. It's not an algorithm. It's not a procedure or a prescription. Instead, passively, the sower was faithful to do his work, but he couldn't guarantee the results. The fruitful results happen. The seed sprouts and grows. But the key phrase here is, he knows not how. He knows not how. So this is more similar 
to the work of a pastor or the work of a Christian in sharing the gospel. All of Christian ministry, all the expanse of Christ's kingdom boils down to this phrase. He knows not how. I mean, you're all here. I don't know how you got here. I, I, have no, I don't know how this happened. We started in a living room those many years ago. We were in a little community center those many years ago. Why are you here? I don't know how. I, I, don't know how. I, I, have no, I have no way of knowing how this happened. We marvel at the mysteriousness of what God has done. Or as you remember, Jesus said to Nicodemus, the wind blows where it wishes, John 3.8. And you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. It's mysterious. It's interesting, as you, if you take a drive in the country in the next month or so, you'll, you'll drive by a field, and one day you'll see it, and it will be bare and black. And then if you drive by the next day, you'll see, if you look closely, especially near dawn, you'll look and you'll see very closely, there'll be neat rows of these fine green hairs emerging out of the ground. It's mysterious. Like, one day there won't be anything, and the next day there'll be something. And then there'll be more of something. And then it'll be obvious there's something. It's mysterious. No one can guarantee the germination. You know, I preach the gospel, hopefully, and all the pastors here work together. We share the gospel, but I can't, I can't make anybody saved. I can't. I can't guarantee germination. So it is with the kingdom's growth. It does not rely on the wit and will of man. And if you're under a ministry where it does require that, you need to leave and get out of there. The mystery marks all of the growth because the growth of the kingdom, just like the growth of an individual in the kingdom, does not happen all at once. It's, it's one of those frustrating things, isn't it? If someone comes to faith in Christ, they get baptized, and, and they join the church, and, and then they struggle because they think, well, I'm, st- I, I'm, st- I'm still sinning. I, th- I, thought, I thought I was done with this. They're like, no, 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 no. You've got, a, you've got a long life of sinning, fighting sin, turning from sin, growing in faith in Christ. The growth sometimes is hardly perceivable. It's incremental, but it's happening. Now, John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, that you, you know that hymn, he wrote a, a treatise on this parable on this passage, it became one of the most helpful things I've ever read. And he applied this kingdom parable to kind of the personal Christian level. And he, and he said, verse 28 speaks of what he called grace in the blade. Grace in the blade. And that's in the beginning of the Christian life. It's the season where you actually you kind of walk by sight mostly and not as much by faith. You know, you read the Bible, and it's exhilarating to you. It's just so awesome. 
So of course you love reading the Bible because you have an immediate rush because it's so amazing, right? Instantly, I'm immediately gratified by the Bible. But then as time goes on, there's grace in the ear. And that's a time of still lots of visible change in a Christian's life. But still the amount of lasting fruit is minimal. You know, you're, you're growing, there's stuff happening, th- things are changing, but as far as actual fruitfulness, there's still, it's just, there is a little bit of fruit, but it's, it's not too much. And then you get to then that kind of third stage, what Newton called grace in the corn. That is the, the, that's the fruit. And that's when a Christian is being fruitful after having been tested by dry seasons by storms, by pestilence. And you know the difference, right? You know when everything's, it's easy to be a Christian. It's easy to feel like you're growing. Oftentimes you're not quite as fruitful as you think you are. But then you also know when you're loving a difficult person, you're loving them because of Christ's love for you. Having gone through that testing, when you're doing that, That is something that only the Spirit could produce, only the kingdom could produce, because you would not produce it naturally. And then you know, oh, yeah, this is happening because of Christ's kingdom. That is then the full maturity. But that's, that's the experience of the Christian life, is this incremental growth. But then verse 29 says, when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, Because the harvest has come. We don't know when that harvest day comes, but one thing is for sure, it will come at once. Maybe you're feeling that this morning. Maybe you're feeling a little disappointed that you haven't grown all at once. Why am I still at this stage? I thought I'd be further along. Maybe you've been searching for the right program or the right process so that you can grow. I'll be honest, I, over the years, I've seen a lot of people get frustrated with their own growth or pace of growth, and they switch from theological fad and church fad, and you can map them over 10, 15 years, and multiple churches and multiple, the, multiple theological perspectives, and they're looking for some type of quick fix and fast track to get them more advanced along the way. And all they need to do is just trust the Lord and let the Lord grow them and be patient. Maybe you're here today and you need to consider the mystery of the kingdom's growth, and you need to relinquish your goals for growth. It isn't a 12-step program, the Christian life. It's not AA. You just trust the Lord, and He's the one who grows you. It also applies not just individually, but then to our view of the expansion of Christ's kingdom. Because right now, and I'm, I'm hearing more Christians say this, they're, they're basically wanting to impose Christ forcibly on other people in order to make the kingdom expand. But it doesn't work that way. We don't believe that. 
That's, that's how Islam can work and Buddhism and Hinduism and even Roman Catholicism can work that way. But Christ's kingdom doesn't grow that way. It grows by a mystery. And yet, it does grow. It does grow. And so I've got to ask, like, think, consider this question. Are you impatient with God's work in your nation? In your city? In your church? In your family? In your marriage? Maybe even in your own soul? If you're impatient, you've got to recognize Christ's kingdom grows and it must grow. It must grow. Paul says, for he must reign. 1 Corinthians 15, 25. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. It must happen. So you need to be patient. Trust his timing. Trust his design. And trust his wise rule and reign. We're not very good at being submissive. We want to do it our our way, on our schedule. We have to trust His timing. That's the point then of that, the seed and the mysterious growth and it's it's, growing up to a harvest. That's the mysterious growth. So we've seen the invincible growth, the mysterious growth, but now verses 30 and 34 is the ironic growth. Because it's all fine and dandy for me to say, oh yeah, this invincible kingdom and the expansiveness of this kingdom and all this stuff. But you just know, hey, if the if this kingdom is guaranteed to grow, how come it looks so small? You know the headlines. Here are the head- here's a couple headlines. I just picked a couple. From sacred to secular, Canada set to lose 9,000 churches, warns National Heritage Group. CBC reports. Number of Canadians reporting religious affiliations at all-time low. Stats Canada says 68% in 2021 reported by CTV. It doesn't, you, can, you can find all kinds of these kind of the church is in decline headlines. You can find them in the U.S. and the U.K. all saying the same thing. And all of this reporting goes together with what scholars call the secularization thesis. The secularization thesis. As society gets more modern, the thesis goes. As society gets more modern, it gets less religious. That's the argument of the secularization thesis. And you might be thinking, hmm, yeah, here, you know, we're going, you know, internet, iPhones, AI, religious stuff goes down. So, so when reporters and gurus and pundits and experts, when they say that the church is passe or that Christians have no voice in society, they are looking at religious trends, at birth rates, at shrinking congregations in the United Church and the Anglican Church and Lutheran Church and even some legacy denominations of the Evangelical Church. But what did Jesus say? Jesus said, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment, John 7, 24. He says then in our, in our section in, in chapter 4, verse 30, what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed. 
Now, we don't grow a lot of mustard in this area, but we grow a lot of canola. And it's very similar to mustard seed because it's really, 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 really tiny, tiny, tiny seed. And you know canola because you see it in the late summer, right? You go driving and you see these large fields of yellow flowers, just, just a blanket of yellow flowers. And it's so beautiful, and you've got to stop, and you've got to get your family out of the car, and you've got to go take a picture in front of it, right? And then post it. But that blanket of flowers, you, you kind of forget, it's coming from this tiny, tiny seed, like a mustard seed. You would never imagine that that could come from that little thing. You, you just, like it's beyond, this is the point, it's beyond your imagination. It, it's beyond it. It's beyond your capacities to imagine that kind of growth and beauty and extent. But Jesus said, verse 32, when it, when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. The mustard seed, just like the canola seed, if you leave it to keep growing, it will have then a dense trunk and thick branches and you can find birds, you'll see them sitting on the canopy of the thick branches of canola Canola field be just the same as a mustard, mustard field. Jesus' point is that what was sown does not look like what it became. What was sown does not look like what it became. I mean, it's kind of like the meme, right? You know, how it started, how it's going. Some people get where they don't know what a meme is. Some do. How it started, you know, lollipops and butterflies. How it's going, tire fire. You know, that's the, that's the, you can put, you can plug anything in there. How it started, how it's going. Well, in this case, how it started is not very encouraging. Mustard seed. How it's going, churches expanded and Christian believers throughout the world started tiny, it's going huge. The thing is, the truth of Jesus' parable is easily forgotten or not easily grasped. And, and that's why Jesus taught this in the first century. Because how could the Jewish carpenter, who was not leading an army against Caesar or even against Herod, how could he hope to achieve any kind of big victory for his kingdom. How? But the path of victory could not come from great size at the beginning. Nevertheless, it would be ironic in how it would inevitably succeed. It's a grand irony. That's the point. God had told the prophet Zechariah, in Zechariah 3.9, he said that he would remove the iniquity of the land in one day. Boom. Done. Nobody in Israel could have imagined that. And yet, the first Good Friday, right then, done. Removes the iniquity of the land in one day. Zechariah said as well, we should not, and this is a great line, we should not despise 
the day of small things. And that's a temptation right now. You think, well, there's only a few of us here. Yeah, I'm encouraged, the church is full, but there's only a few of us when you think of the, you know, the million-odd others lost in this city or in this nation. There's so few of us. Do not despise the day of small things. We don't know what the Lord is doing. We don't know what He might do. I mean, you can think of many examples. Jesus fed the 4,000 in Mark chapter 8, and He did it with 4,000 fishes. No! He didn't have a fish meal prepared ahead of time for everybody. It says, with a, a few small fish. Now, the children marvel at the story, right? They're told, taught it in Sunday school. They marvel at the miracle of a few small fish or at a tiny mustard seed. But the adults, the adults are triggered with their doubts, with their skepticism, and with their cynicism. And each of you, each of you is marked by that cynicism. We live in a cynical age, so it's there. And yet God is able to radically change the size and the shape and the expansion of his kingdom and change it dramatically so that the growth is unrecognizable compared to the starting point. I, it, it's a thought that this church could be a catalyst that the Lord would use it for future growth long after I'm in the ground, likely long after you're in the ground. But the Lord could use this church to see the advance of the gospel in this region and beyond. But do I believe it? Do you believe it? This is what we have to come to grips with. Because cynicism and unbelief required Jesus to actually teach about his kingdom's expansion in this way, in the way of parables. And that's why it says in verses 33 and 34, with many such parables, he spoke to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. And this is then, then it. It leads us to conclude what we've been taught and consider how it ought, we ought to think about it for ourselves. And so I just bring these few applications then to consider as we wind it down here. All of these parables obviously emphasize the expansion of the kingdom. So that's what's going on. Why did Jesus need to teach this? Why, did it, why is it here? And, and it is just this, first of all. It's because of doubts. Because of doubts. Doubts. Doubts about the future. Doubts about the success of the kingdom. You, you just think about it. At the trial of Jesus, there were doubts. At the crucifixion of Jesus, there were doubts. At the ascension of Jesus, there were doubts. At the martyrdom of Stephen, there were doubts. As, as there was persecution in Jerusalem of the early church to snuff it out, there were doubts. And throughout the history of the church, there were doubts all the way along. Or you. There were doubts, my guess is, in your heart this last week. Not going to admit it. 
You're not going to come out and say, because you're not supposed to say that. Talking about what's going on in the secret recesses of your heart that nobody else knows about. Unspoken doubts, doubts not admitted. Jesus taught these parables to remind us that his kingdom wins. He's telling us the kingdom wins, even though you feel like it doesn't and it's not going to. Christ's kingdom invincibly expands, mysteriously expands, and ironically expands. Now, the doubts of our own day are amplified by this secularization thesis, that secularization must expand as we get more modern. It makes us doubt that the kingdom can expand. But as Michael Horton said, assessing the claims of this secularization thesis, he said this, There's no way of predicting the emergence of the church from a nucleus of 11 terrified followers of a crucified Jew whose leader had denied to a little girl even knowing Jesus. And given its history ever since, there is no way of explaining the existence of the church today, much less its spread to the ends of the earth in natural terms. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. Repentance and faith are gifts. We are born again from above. Given the conditions of modernization, secularization will continue as one of many regimes of this fading age. Yet it is Christ and His regime who is raised from the dead against all odds who has the last word. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That is then the key truth. I was going to make a comment on people's fascination or interest in post-millennialism because they are interested in a positive, hopeful, expectant expansion of Christ's kingdom. I'm just going to say, you don't need post-millennialism. You can if you want. You just need to recognize the role of the kingdom. It's expanding. It's positive. It's hopeful. And it's expectant. But I want to just close by saying, looking at your soul, your own spirituality. If Jesus' kingdom expands in this invincible yet mysterious and ultimately ironic way, then when you participate in that powerful victory, It involves your allegiance, your allegiance from the inside out, from the inside out. Because that that inside work is where the battleground is. That inside work is where this spiritual photosynthesis happens. The inside work is where the organic development of the kingdom in your soul happens. The inside work is where the light dawns and pierces every dark corner of your life where sin, guilt, and shame are dwelling. And so, let us encourage each other to know the power of Christ's kingdom from the inside out in our prayers, in our Bible intake, in our thoughtful biblical reasoning, in our wise applications, and in our deepening joy in the midst of circumstances from the inside out. Christ will do this. He must do this. He will do it. And he will do it invincibly. 
mysteriously and ironically for all the world to marvel at. The point is for you to go not in unbelief and doubt, but to go with confidence in Christ the King. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would now put the message of the King on our lips, that we would share your truth, even the gospel of Jesus Christ, with a lost world. Send us out in that way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please rise as we respond in worship to the rock of ages. Please stand. It's very simple. Is your life built on that rock of ages? That's what we're here to be, encouraging each other. If it's not, you do need to reckon with the truth of this prophecy given in Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Friends, you need to know how you stand before the King in his kingdom. Know that today. Go in peace. You're dismissed.